Does it ever occur to you that most people in the world actually have faith in something? There are more than 4,000 religions in the world, so there obviously are many people who have some kind of faith in a God or a, a spiritual system of belief. But people also can have faith without being spiritual at all. Some people have faith in themselves or their family or their little group, however they define their group. Some people have faith in government or in the rule of law. And as believers who live in an unbelieving world, we can think that sometimes some of our conflicts are the result of the fact that we have faith and others don't have faith. And yet, the people who are far from God in our world likely have faith in someone or something. And sometimes the conflicts occur because of this difference in who or what we choose to trust. That's the situation Daniel faces as an exile in a foreign land. We've seen his life unfold as we walk through this book. And as we arrive in chapter 6, more than 60 years now have passed since we first met Daniel in chapter 1. He's been through some phenomenal experiences. His life has been on the line more than once. And he has survived the downfall of the Babylonian Empire. And now now he has become an advisor to King Darius who oversees a new empire, the empire of Medo-Persia. And under this new king, Daniel is going to be sucked into a conflict. It's a conflict caused by treachery but it becomes a conflict shaped by faith. Daniel's faithfulness to God versus the king's faithfulness to the law. Let's take a look and see how this plays out. Daniel chapter 6, verse 1. It pleased Darius to appoint 120 satraps to rule throughout the kingdom with three administrators over them, one of whom was Daniel. The satraps were made accountable to them so that the king might not suffer loss. Now Daniel so distinguished himself among the administrators and the satraps by his exceptional qualities that the king planned to set him over the whole kingdom. At this, the administrators and the satraps tried to find grounds for charges against Daniel in his conduct of government affairs, but they were unable to do so. They could find no corruption in him because he was trustworthy and neither corrupt nor negligent. Finally, these men said, we will never find any basis for charges against this man, Daniel, unless it has something to do with the law of his God. At this time, King Darius is the most powerful man in the world. When the Medo-Persian Empire conquers Babylon, it becomes the largest empire the world has ever seen. And they rule over an extensive territory, which includes countries that today we know as Iran, Iraq, Libya, Israel, Egypt, Uzbekistan, Kazakhstan, Pakistan, and more. This is an immense empire. And with the need to control all of that territory, much of it occupied by conquered peoples, an efficient system of government control is vital. 
And so as we read here in the Bible, Darius divides the kingdom into regions, each of which is administered by one or more officials called a satrap. And their duty is to keep the population in line and to collect taxes and funnel those taxes back to the king. Now when you've got your hands on the flow of tax money, there can be temptations. There can be opportunities to siphon some of that money into your own pocket. And so Darius, recognizing that, makes these satraps accountable to three top administrators. Their duty is to protect the king, as it says here, from loss. From the loss of any tax revenues due to misappropriation of funds. This administrative role requires someone of great integrity, and Daniel is perfectly suited to that role. He excels in this role. So King Darius learns that Daniel is incorruptible. He can be trusted completely. So he decides to make Daniel the top administrator for the entire kingdom. Now, that doesn't make everybody happy. Daniel has some rivals, and they want to prevent his promotion. And we're not told why they want to undermine Daniel, but I think we can make some pretty intelligent guesses. First, they may not like his nationality. He's Jewish. He's from a different race and a different culture. And this can breed suspicion and dislike. And sadly, this kind of attitude is all too common in every society. People can find it so easy to be resentful of the newcomer, the outsider, or the foreigner, and be particularly resentful if those people achieve success. Ask yourself this question. How do I feel when I see an immigrant do better than me financially or professionally? Do I feel resentment? That may be part of what's going on here. They also may, may not like Daniel's faith. He's, he's Jewish and he worships a different God. And religion at that time was strongly connected to nationalism with each nation having its own gods. So Daniel is not just a foreigner, he still worships a foreign god, and this would make him suspect in the eyes of many people. And third, they may not like his integrity. The king does, but they may not, particularly if they're involved in some financial shenanigans. If they've got their fingers in the till, they would not like Daniel having the authority to go around and poke his nose into everybody's business and uncover what they're doing. And so for any or all of these reasons, these other officials conspire against Daniel. And yet, as they look at his life, as they examine his behavior, they can't find a single thing to use against him. There's nothing they can get a grip on. Daniel is exemplary because he's neither corrupt nor negligent. He doesn't just ignore godly behavior. He doesn't just avoid godly behavior. He also works diligently to fulfill his responsibilities. He doesn't just practice personal godliness. He's also a great worker. So he can't be accused of hypocrisy or immorality or shirking his duties. Daniel's faith results in a well-rounded life of integrity. And that leaves his enemies 
nothing. They can't attack him professionally, and they really can't attack him personally. So they decide to set him up. They're going to set him up, and they're going to do so by manipulating the king into misusing the power of law. Look what happens starting in verse 6. So these administrators and satraps went as a group to the king and said, May King Darius live forever. The royal administrators, prefects, satraps, advisors, and governors have all agreed, pay attention to that, have all agreed that the king should issue an edict and enforce the decree that anyone who prays to any god or human being during the next 30 days, except to you, your majesty, shall be thrown into the lion's den. Now, your majesty, issue the decree. Put it in writing so that it cannot be altered in accordance with the law of the Medes and Persians, which cannot be repealed. So King Darius put the decree in writing. Now, when Daniel learned that the decree had been published, he went home to his upstairs room where the windows opened toward Jerusalem. Three times a day, he got down on his knees and prayed, giving thanks to God, just as he had done before. Then these men went as a group and found Daniel praying and asking God for help. So they went to the king and spoke to him about his royal decree. Did you not publish a decree that during the next 30 days, anyone who prays to any god or human being except to you, your majesty, would be thrown into the lion's den? The king answered, the decree stands in accordance with the law of the Medes and Persians, which cannot be repealed. And then they said to the king, Daniel, who is one of the exiles from Judah, pays no attention to you, your majesty, or to the decree you put in writing. He still prays three times a day. What these men are doing is an act of insubordination within the organization because the fact is Daniel outranks most of them. It's also an act of treachery against their own empire because they are misusing their power and manipulating their king. And unfortunately, there always will be people of ill intent with selfish motives who are willing to manipulate other people to accomplish their selfish purposes. And if those people are close to the levers of power, They will manipulate the creation of laws and statutes and regulations to further their own ends. And when that happens, the law begins to lose its moral force because it's no longer objective. At that point, the law simply becomes a tool for the powerful to use against the powerless. These men care nothing for the law. They care only about themselves. And they are unscrupulous, but oh, are they crafty. And so they present this idea to the king, and it all seems so benign. They present it as a unified request from all his government officials. Now, that's a blatant lie. Daniel's not in the loop. He's not been consulted. But they want to make Darius believe that there's no ulterior motive to this proposal. Furthermore, it was quite common in that day for kings and emperors to be worshipped as gods. And so this law appeals to Darius's vanity. People will worship him. That's pretty cool. And most importantly, it's a great time for this king 
to issue this kind of law. It's early in his reign, and he needs to bring unity to this huge and disparate empire that he oversees. And if everyone worships him for 30 days, it will create a moment of national unity. The people will engage in an action that highlights the power of this king and his empire. It's a brilliant tactic, and it works. Daniel's enemies manipulate the king into passing this law, which they are confident that Daniel will violate. You see, they do view Daniel as a man of integrity. They believe that he'll act according to his conscience. And then when he breaks the law, he won't have a way out because in this nation, laws are sacred. Once passed, they are irrevocable. These men have put together a well-executed plan of treachery. And yet, it would be so easy for Daniel not to violate this new law. After all, it only lasts for 30 days. And the decree does not actually force him to pray to the king. He just can't pray to his God. Daniel easily could say, I'll just take a 30-day break from prayer. And yet prayer is his lifeline to God. Prayer is what sustains him as an exile living in a world of unbelief. Prayer demonstrates his devotion to the God who has strengthened him and sustained him in this alien world throughout his adult life. How could Daniel merely to save his own skin stop praying? How could he do that after all God's done for him? And so Daniel prays. He violates a man-made law because he serves a higher law. He continues to do what he's always done. He prays three times a day in his house with the window opened toward Jerusalem. Jerusalem where the Jewish people believed that God made his earthly home. And by physically orienting himself toward Jerusalem and then by kneeling down as he prays, Daniel involves his body as well as his mind with the act of prayer. He's involving him whole self in this time of prayer. And he prays before an open window. Now it's important to note <coughs> that most windows in that day were set high in the wall. So it's not like Daniel is praying in front of a floor-to-ceiling picture window. He's not on display like a department store mannequin. And yet, the window's open. Which means someone with malicious intent could find a way to spy on him and watch him perform this illegal act of prayer. And that's what his enemies do. They catch Daniel praying and they report back to the king. But King Darius, he had no desire to ensnare Daniel. He didn't want to push, punish Daniel. He wanted to promote Daniel. He admires Daniel and respects him. And when he realizes that he has been manipulated, he reacts with great consternation, as we see in verse 14. When the king heard this, he was greatly distressed. He was determined to rescue Daniel and made every effort until sundown to save him. 
This is an amazing thing. King Darius rules over the largest, strongest empire in the world, and yet at this moment his hands are tied by a man-made law, a law that he himself had written. So a powerful ruler finds himself up against the limits of his power. Now because the king admires Daniel, he makes every effort to save him. Perhaps he engages in some research to see if there is some kind of legal precedent for overturning his law. Maybe he consults with some other advisors to say, what what would happen if I did repeal this decree? We don't know exactly what the king did. But he obviously pursues every option that comes to mind. And he's racing the clock. It's an issue that has to be decided that day. And unfortunately, he's trapped. He's trapped by the law. And because the law gives shape to his own ability to rule, he cannot abandon it. And so here we see the outlines and shape of this conflict. Darius must remain faithful to the law. Daniel remains faithful to God. And because of these conflicts in faith, Daniel winds up in a den of lions. Verse 15. Then the men went as a group to King Darius and said to him, Remember, your majesty, that according to the law of the Medes and Persians, no decree or edict that the king issues can be changed. So the king gave the order. And they brought Daniel and threw him into the lion's den. The king said to Daniel, May your God, whom you serve continually, rescue you. A stone was brought and placed over the mouth of the den, and the king sealed it with his own signet ring and with the rings of his nobles, so that Daniel's situation might not be changed. Then the king returned to his palace and spent the night without eating and without any entertainment being brought to him, and he could not sleep. Daniel and the king are in this situation because each in their own way has faith and integrity. Daniel has faith in God, and he demonstrates his integrity by actions that are consistent with his faith. And the king has faith in the law, and he demonstrates some integrity by actions that are consistent with that faith. And in this moment, he hates what is happening. He knows it will be an unjust outcome, but he believes he has no other choice. He's bound by the law, a law that in this case will lead to an unjust outcome. And before we judge Darius too harshly, we need to note that an incredibly important shift has taken place in the way that power is exercised. In Babylon, the law was subject to the king. We saw that with King Nebuchadnezzar. In Medo-Persia, the king is subject to the law. That's what's happening here. That's a huge difference, and for the most part, it's a very good thing. History teaches us that some of the greatest progress towards justice occurred when kings began to recognize limits on their power. A ruler who believes he can do what he wants, when he wants, how he wants, with who he wants, is not likely to be a just, fair ruler. He's likely to treat men and women cavalierly for his own end. And when kings understand that they must follow the law, just like other people, society generally improves. 
And I believe this is something that God wants. I believe that God wants nations to have people living together based on laws that are just and fair and administered impartially. And I believe this is one reason why under the old covenant, God established the Jewish people, not just as a community of faith, but as a nation. God established a unique nation built around his laws to be a model for the world. He wanted the world to see that the healthiest cultures are those who are leaders are accountable to laws and to God. And that's a lesson that the world seems to regularly forget. It's a lesson that many of our leaders and politicians must learn. In our nation today, Way too many governmental leaders from all parts of the political spectrum want to pick and choose which laws they will follow based on their personal preferences, even though they are part of the system for making and enforcing the laws. Too many of them act as if they're accountable only to themselves rather than to the laws they have sworn to uphold. And King Darius has many faults, but one thing I like about this man is that he understands there are some limits on his power. He understands, I don't get to just enforce the laws I like. And yet, having said that, his situation also highlights the limitations of man-made laws. In this case, the law has become perverse because the king cannot undo a bad law to prevent an injustice from occurring. And when the law can be manipulated in order to serve selfish ends, it no longer serves the cause of justice. So Darius faces a dilemma. He's faced now with a situation that cannot be solved by human wisdom. It cannot be solved by the laws of his nation. Only God can solve this dilemma. The king must rely on Daniel's God to bring about justice. And we see in this that God has worked through circumstances and events to confront the most powerful king in the world with the true limitations of his own power. So Darius is confronted by God. And Daniel is confronted by lions. Now, I don't know about you, but I read through this passage and I find myself asking, why would a king even want to keep a bunch of lions around anyway? They usually did it for two reasons. The first reason was entertainment. The king might enjoy walking down to that lion pit at the end of the day and watching people throw raw meat in, in front of the animals or perhaps a helpless animal and then enjoy the savagery as the lions devoured their meal. And then for punishment. If you're a subject of this king, what could be more fearful than the thought of being torn to bits by a bunch of hungry lions? Lions are a pretty good incentive for obeying the law. And that's the sentence that is held over Daniel's head, and that is the sentence that's carried out. And the king seals Daniel in the pit. He is locked away so that no one can get in and intervene and change his situation. And the king goes back to the palace where he spends a restless night. Clearly, Darius has a conscience, and he's deeply troubled. 
yet there's nothing he can do except place his hope in Daniel's God. Daniel, may your God, whom you serve continually, rescue you. What happens next? Let's see in verse 19. At the first light of dawn, the king got up and hurried to the lion's den. And when he came near the den, he called to Daniel in an anguished voice, hoping against hope, Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God, whom you serve continually, been able to rescue you from the lions? Daniel answered, may the king live forever. Can you imagine how Darius must have felt when he heard Daniel's voice call out from that pit? Man, that would be goosebump time. My God sent his angel and he shut the mouths of the lions. They've not hurt me because I was found innocent in his sight. Nor have I ever done any wrong before you, your majesty. The king was overjoyed and gave orders to lift Daniel out of the den. And when Daniel was lifted out of the den, no wound was found on him because he had trusted in his God. At the king's command, the men who had falsely accused Daniel were brought in and thrown into the lion's den along with their wives and children. And before they reached the floor of the den, the lions overpowered them and crushed all their bones. Then King Darius wrote to all the nations and peoples of every language in all the earth, May you prosper greatly. I issue a decree that in every part of my kingdom, people must fear and reverence the God of Daniel. For he is the living God, and he endures forever. His kingdom will not be destroyed. His dominion will never end. He rescues and he saves. He performs signs and wonders in the heavens and on the earth. He has rescued Daniel from the power of the lions. So Daniel prospered during the reign of Darius and the reign of Cyrus, the Persian. The king spends this horrible night racked in his conscience about this unjust sentence he had to carry out, hoping against hope that Daniel's God can do something. He rushes to the pit in the morning and discovers, oh, amazement, incredible joy, Daniel's alive. And Daniel survives because he's done nothing wrong. He's not conspired against the king. He's trusted in God. a marvelous thing. It's an incredible rescue. And yet we need to understand that this isn't the formula for being rescued. Because sometimes, in some situations, God lets believers die. He doesn't rescue everyone. And why is that? The answer is, we don't know. And we can't pretend that we do know. We just know that God does let some people die as martyrs and others he rescues. If we step back, though, and consider the grand scheme of things, it's actually irrelevant because we're all going to die anyway. And if we're believers, when we die, we will be with the Lord forever. And so the question in this life is not will we die, it's only how and when. And we simply need to trust that God is working out His purposes in our lives and in His world and that He will take us home to be with Him in the time and the place and the way of His own choosing. There's no guarantee. And that means when Daniel was sealed in the pit and the darkness descended 
and he heard the footsteps of the king and the guards walking away. He had no idea what would happen. He had no idea if he would survive the night. He did because that was God's plan and purpose for his life. And it was God's plan and God's purpose for King Darius as well. God wanted to use this moment in Daniel's life to be an incredible witness to this king. And the king is able to see this miraculous outcome. And so he celebrates what God has done for Daniel and he celebrates and honors the living God. The grace of God is so evident here. God is gracious to Daniel and spares his life. He's gracious to this king. He doesn't bring any calamity or judgment on on Darius for allowing himself to be manipulated into treating Daniel unfairly. God is revealing himself to this king so that he can be a more wise, just ruler. And yet the king, unfortunately, though he's the recipient of some grace, he extends no grace to the treacherous parties. And they had such a grand plan. And it ends in disastrous failure. And in that day, in those Middle Eastern cultures, it was customary and it was law that if you made a false accusation against another person and you were found out, then you suffered the fate that you wanted them to suffer. That's what happens. In addition, though, it was believed that for you to be that kind of treacherous person, your family must be infected with evil, and so the whole family had to suffer with you. And we read through this, and it shocks our sensibilities. But it was a different time and a different culture. And rest assured, we're not told to follow this practice. We're just told that it happened. The king's response, his rather vicious response, shows another limitation of man-made law. Human laws should exist to promote justice, but not vengeance. And from my vantage point, that's what this appears to be. It's the vengeful act of taking human life, even the lives of innocent children, simply to put fear into the hearts of people. And that's not what God wants in his world. What God wants is for men and women to have faith in him. What God wants in his world is for the leaders of nations to feel a sense of accountability to him. And King Darius does not become a man of faith, but he understands the true limits of his authority. He knows that he's accountable to someone greater than the law. He is accountable to the living God, and that is such a powerful truth for every leader to acknowledge. God uses these events to humble the king. He uses these events to keep Daniel close to the center of power. And so Daniel has experienced a miracle. He's experienced God's grace in an amazing way, and yet it doesn't mean that he's going to get to go home. He's not going to be set free. He will continue to live there in that foreign place as an exile. He will continue to live in a land where most people do not share his faith. He's there to be God's representative 
so that that empire can see what a man of faith looks like. He's there to be an advisor to kings, so hopefully the kings will rule in more godly, just ways. It's not a comfortable or easy life. It's the role that God has called Daniel to play. And Daniel is able to find contentment in fulfilling God's purposes. I love this story. Like most biblical stories, it has multiple layers. But it begins with some treacherous men who have faith only in themselves, and they fail. We see a king who places his faith in the law, and the law fails. Daniel places his faith in God, who never fails. Daniel's example is so instructive for us because like him, we live as exiles in this world. We are surrounded by a culture that largely does not share our faith, and Daniel shows us how to live in such a world. We don't place our faith in ourselves. We don't manipulate the law. We don't cavalierly break the law, but neither do we place our trust in the law. And most importantly, we do not let the law tell us how to worship our God or practice our faith. And like Daniel, in a place of exile, we choose to live by faith in the living God. We do what is right, and we leave our lives in the hands of God.